Bryn-Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to another special edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, COVID-19 coverage. Uh, today, we're feeling a little more festive. We're seeing that a lot of the uh, uh, country is, is slowly coming out of this lockdown and shutdown and quarantine, and we're trying to figure out how do we get back to normal. And today, we're going to be talking about the, finding the silver lining and finding the benefit to this shutdown. I think we've had um, you know six to eight weeks, depending on your um, depending on your area of shutdown. And you know, you give ophthalmologists five minutes, and um, you know, we can we can almost do a full surgery. So you give us six to eight weeks, and there's a lot of things we can do. And so this has been a, an opportunity for us to think creatively about the future of what we can do for our practice. So with that preamble, Blake, why don't you introduce um, our wonderful guests? Aloha, Gary, and mahalo for that uh, fantastic introduction. A little bit of trivia to get us started. Hawaii, when measured east to west, is the second widest uh, state in the union. Behind, what would your guess be, Gary? Alaska? You betcha, you betcha. I knew you knew your geography. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, we wanted to wear our Hawaiian shirts because, you know, we're starting to get past uh, us, a lot of the, the shock and a lot of the fear um, and things that were happening four and five weeks ago. And we've been in major planning mode. And so I thought to myself, you know, we've been trying to get these two people specifically on the show for a while now because I feel like they have a great message, especially as it, as it relates to, you know, how we can not only survive in the new normal post-COVID, but how we can thrive. And, and Dan, I'll throw it to you first because, you know, you've talked a lot about this valley and kind of getting to the other side of the valley. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that I think we have these opportunities now when we can uh, go ahead and have time on our hands to start looking at what could we do better than we did before. So we've just used the analogy of uh, let's look to the other side of the valley and see what it's going to be like and make it better than it was before and how to work with the staff, um, how to work with our processes internally. So I think that that we really do have the opportunity now to because we have time on our hands to make it better than it's ever been. Um, make it safer for our patients, make our patient flow better. Um, a lot of things that we can adapt with uh, telemedicine that we're getting used to. And um, I think this is a, um, I really love your, um, these podcasts because we're really getting down to the nuts and bolts of what can we actually do. The one thing I think we have now though, is since everybody's thinking about going back to work, uh, we've actually got a shorter time to do all the educational things that we thought we were going to get done. So I've got a lot of practices that are saying, oh, I better get going on doing those things that I had on my list. And I think that's a good thing for us to talk about today. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of interesting. I'm feeling that myself right now. I was kind of in shutdown mode and kind of thinking like, we never know when we're going to get back. We, you know, And then all of a sudden, it seems like very rapidly, we're now thinking about get going back. And I'm almost thinking like, oh, I should have been doing more during this time. And now how do we ramp back up in a way that's responsible and while still taking advantage of this time? So Netta, what have you guys been doing um, during, during this time? And, and have you been surprised a little bit about how quickly maybe we are starting to get back? 
Yes, absolutely. I, you know, when we, when this all started, it, it felt very sudden. I mean, for us, especially in LA, it was very sudden. We had a positive patient who, uh, uh, who's come, actually the companion was positive for COVID. And um, when she had surgery, one of our anesthesiologists got sick. And so before even the shutdown, our surgery center closed down about a week before. And so we were kind of trickling, trying to decide when, when to close down the office. And then when the academy came out with their directive, we then closed down. And then uh, I think that same day or maybe the next day, we came up with this long list of things we can do with our downtime. Uh, obviously, we had to furlough our, our staff when we realized how long we're going to have downtime. Uh, so I had a long list for work and I had a long list at home that I wanted to get done and I think we've probably ticked off maybe a three or four of those things at, uh, from the top but doesn't mean that that long list shouldn't uh, be carried on through the year I, you know I'm, I'm still excited about implementing a lot of the things that we have our, on our to-do list to improve our practice to improve home um, and just keep at it and it may you know even if we don't we're not gonna have downtime uh, moving forward doesn't mean that our focus should shift. I, I think that's one thing we've learned from this experience is that it's good to pause and really rethink our routine, uh, again, whether it's at home or, or at work, and try to look at ways where you can improve efficiencies, where you can uh, just imp improve the morale, the sense of, of commitment to the practice, your educational uh, commitment, all of those things. So. Um, you asked what we've done. There's a lot we've done and be happy to talk about it. But I think probably one thing that has been really surprising was how um, telemedicine and telehealth, having to do that out of, um, out of basically a force uh, to be able to maintain our communication with our patients has become a really central part of our moving forward um, momentum in our practice, that we really want to keep that as a, as a consistent uh, part of our practice. Let me ask you something about that, Netta. So, so you know, um, I know that you guys have, have done a great job with your telemedicine, um, and I would hope that many of the people who are listening and watching this, you know, have done that, uh, have gotten started with it. But specifically, what are what are some of the things that you think are going to carry over even after COVID? So, what parts of telemedicine do you think that you're still going to use? Because I talked to some people, and they're like, "Yeah, man, I'm doing it now because I have to. There's no other way to see patients." But, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to abandon that as soon as we get we're through with this. But I don't feel like that, that's going to be my take on it. And, I, and I'm just curious what you think. Well, I think what, you know, we initially did it also just out of, again, as I said, out of force. Uh, but what we found surprising was how the patients responded to the experience. And now maybe it was because, again, they were grateful to not have to come into the office. But also living in Los Angeles, one of the biggest hurdles we have in capturing patients outside of our five mile radius or 10 mile radius to take time off and the traffic and all of that and the inconveniences of coming in. Um, and so we found this as an opportunity to potentially bypass that hurdle. Um, and uh, moving forward, um, we hope to continue offering it and fine tuning it further and really offering it as a service to patients who don't wanna take a half day off to come in for, for example, a, a, a consultation for refractive surgery, where many, many times patients just come in and most of that consultation is talking and education. Um, I think uh, patients, as the same way that we've become used to doing Zoom meetings and uh, socializing with friends and colleagues through Zoom and really realizing that 
even though it's, it is a, it is a uh, kind of a separation, it's not the same as sitting next to a friend or a colleague, uh, but it is close to it. Um, when, when it offers that level of efficiency, you actually celebrate the opportunity to do that. So patients are also doing that now. They, whether it's because they have had to uh, have telemedicine consults with their doctors or the fact that their work has required them to now be on Zoom, it's now not such a foreign way of communicating. And so our hope is that uh, with certain parts of our practice, refractive surgery consultations, for example, that most of them is educational uh, communication or educating the patient about the, the surgery. We hope to do that consultation telemedicine style. And then if the patient wishes to proceed, they come in for a formal evaluation and potentially have their surgery on the same day as their evaluation. Um, what we found surprising was that in our telemedicine consult for refractive surgery, 100% of those patients have signed up for surgery. Uh, whereas when we used to do it before this COVID era uh, and we would do consults in person, I would say about 70% of those patients would sign up for surgery. So there is value there, I think. Um, and the value comes from convenience. It also comes from the fact that they have my attention for 20 minutes. Whereas when they come into the office, the patient is being triaged through the practice and maybe out of their 20 minute visit, they see me for less than five minutes. Um, so I think, again, thinking about surprising um, uh, revelations out of uh, things that you had to do out of, um, you know, uh, out of this uh, crisis to survive through this crisis, there have been some revelations of this. Yeah, so I think I think with uh, and thank you for saying that. I, I think with with this crisis, you know, it's possible we have moved ophthalmology forward by a decade because we're now in sort of this Zoom economy or post-COVID Zoom economy where people have widely adopted video conferencing as almost like the new normal, and and it's almost taking place or close to taking place as you mentioned face-to-face um, -face interactions. You know, Dan, we had talked a little bit earlier about back in the day, I think all of us at one point or another and possibly still did LASIK seminars, but that would require patients to drive in and register and be there in person. And it was maybe a little bit awkward and you may get a huge turnout or you may get a few people. You know, I'm thinking about having patients coming in possibly for a testing only style screening where they get like a topography and a refraction and a pachymetry, for example, um, and then we could we would know pretty quickly if they were a good candidate. And then having sort of a, a an evening event where we know patients are already good candidates, and doing sort of a batch um, educational event, and then they could come back in either for same day surgery or maybe they come in for a quicker evaluation where a lot of their where a lot of their you know questions have been answered already by by the doctor. But we're able to multiply our impact by doing sort of a Zoom style meeting. What, did, what, are, what is your experience in that? And, and how does that also translate maybe to lens-based refractive surgery? Yeah, uh, Gary, um, uh, what I've found over the years, if you're gonna try to get interest from patients, it's real hard to get them interested in a seminar for LASIK. You know, we did them for years and it kind of burned out. So a lot of times, if you're gonna go back and do education, you gotta educate them with something that they don't know about. And so what we've done, uh, um, uh, since I'm the chairman of Iowa Partners, we have 17 practices that I'm giving advice to right now. So what we did is come up with a, a new old term, if you want to call it that, 
lens-based refractive surgery. We call it LBRS, and we have LBRS seminars because they don't know what LBRS is, so they're interested in logging in. They know who Jury Vision is, and they know that they can get some information there. And so we define lens-based refractive surgery, the most powerful refractive surgeries uh, that we do. And that includes ICL, it includes RLE, and it includes refractive cataract surgery, so we can define that. And the other thing that we really define in that is we can communicate to them that they do have a lens in their eye. Most patients don't know they have a lens in their eye. And that's just as important for the LASIK patient who 10 years from now may think their LASIK wears off. If they didn't know they had a lens in their eye, it's gonna hurt us down the road. So we do the education for patients um, about lens-based refractive surgery and dysfunctional lens syndrome all the time in the office. But now we're gonna do it not only for seminars for our patients, but we're gonna do it seminars for uh, the ODs too, because they're not familiar with lens-based refractive surgery, uh, three stages of DLS, and we can do that through these video conferencing and I think there's a lot of interest, but sometimes you have to create something that the patients or your OD referrals uh, don't know about. Because if you go to your OD referrals and say, we're gonna do a LASIK education, they're gonna say, did that, been there. But if you come up with something that, uh, that uh, really is catchy. The other thing I found that's really valuable when we're talking about um, RLE, that's part of lens-based refractive surgery, is, is saying very boldly, we can prevent cataracts. Boy, do I get some head noddings of that or some tilt the head sideways and say, you mean you can prevent cataracts? And I said, yeah. Well, we modern surgery is now such that we can give you near vision, distance vision, stabilize your vision system and prevent cataracts. And that's something that's good to do in an educational seminar for, um, uh, for your patients and ODs. They like to hear that. So I think that we're in the mode right now uh, where we can do uh, seminars again, as long as it's something that they want to learn about. They're curious. And as you know, and you've done a good job with these podcasts, sometimes the title's important. It's something that's gonna make them wanna click on it uh, and, and come in. And I think if you could do it, if they could do it from the comfort of their home too, uh, whether it be patients or ODs, I think you're gonna get much, much, much more buy-in. Dan, you know, sometimes when we talk about the, the year 2008 and, and sort of LASIK numbers pre and post, a lot of people are always talking about how LASIK is, is so, so much down. But I remember at this last ACOS meeting, we talked a lot about, well, if you start to include, you know, RLE numbers and start to include uh, multifocal, you know, refractive cataract surgery numbers, that, that's still refractive surgery. It's just lens-based refractive surgery. So if you included all that, we're probably doing more, you know, refractive procedures. It's just, it's just evolved past just LASIK. If you think about the options for implants we have now versus 2008. So, you know, if there's, if there's, you know, what, what advice would you have to doctors who are sitting here listening to this thinking, you know, I want to thrive after, you know, we get through with this. I want to position myself uh, well, um, especially if they haven't really started to engage fully on doing, you know, RLEs or, or, and things like that. Maybe they're doing some, some premium IOLs here and there for cataract patients, but they haven't done ICL. They haven't done RLE. Can you talk about, you know, what your advice would be for that? Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening. Most of the practices that are working with Iowa partners um, are cataract practices. They're not refractive practices or cataract practices that are moving their cataract surgery from the ASC in the hospital to their office. 
So it's been kind of a clean slate of getting them to think about you're already doing lens-based refractive surgery with your premium patients that you're doing. Um, uh, have you been starting to talk to your patients about the fact that they have dysfunctional lens syndrome stage one and two, and not just waiting till stage three, which is a cataract? This whole idea of lens-based refractive surgery education from top to bottom, educate the upper level staffs and surgeons so they're confident with it, go to the staff, go to the counselors and keep pressing on the same theme. What we did is we did that back in 2008. When Jason Stahl and I uh, and Jason Britton was with us at that point in time, we, we sat down and said, what are we gonna do? You know, the economy's bad. Let's pivot over into being a full-framed refractive practice. And we've done exactly like Blake said, our numbers are not down. We just do a broader range of all seven procedures in refractive surgery, we do them all. And then I think practices that aren't doing that have a huge opportunity. I've always jokingly said that the number one sentence that said in every OD and MD's practice, ophthalmologist practices at the end of the exams is good news, Mrs. Jones, you don't have a cataract. Everybody's saying that all the time. We never say that. We talk about the lens in their eye, where it is. And I tell them um, that stage three is a cataract. And they look at me and said, does everybody get a cataract? And I say, yes, if you live long enough. Do you have to wait that long? No, we have an opportunity that we can prevent cataracts nowadays. It flows uh, amazingly well. So anybody that's on this that's not talking to patients about the other stages of lens changes besides cataracts is really missing the boat of helping their patients and helping their practice. We, we say to patients, good news, Mrs. Joan, you have cataracts. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better news nowadays with all the advanced technology that we have. Um, um, to answer you, Blake, about how we approach um, refractive surgery, we consider ourselves a you know cataract refractive surgery practice. I also do corneal transplants. And across the board of all the things that we consider ourselves experts in, including refractive cataract and cornea, I really feel strongly that you cannot be considered an expert unless you offer the full offerings to your patients. And so, um, you know, to be um, a strong refractive uh, surgeon, refractive cataract surgeon, you need to also consider the other alternatives that are lens-based, um, such as, you know, ICLs, and then also refractive surgery. Um, and patients are seeking that. Um, and if you, you know, we cannot pigeonhole ourselves and not evolve with the advances in technology anymore and be able to hold on to patients. I think this time when we've had downtime and we were talking about um, taking advantage of the downtime to be more creative and tap into those things that we put in the back burner of our mind. One of the things that I would urge all our colleagues to do is think, sit down and really think about all the ways they would like to uh, improve their practice. And I would say as a cataract surgeon, there's nothing more fulfilling than expanding the scope of your practice by adding uh, lens-based technologies and taking advantage of all the wonderful advances out there in IOL technologies and uh, femtosecond lasers and, you know, ICL. I always tell my, my uh, refractive patients who, to whom I offer ICL that my happiest refractive patients are my ICL patients. Um, and so there's a lot of value out there. There's so many webinars and ways to educate yourself. So if you feel uncomfortable um, expanding your scope of practice into some field such as, you know, ICL, 
you can tap in and look up on iTube, uh, ICL surgeries and educate yourself this next couple of weeks and uh, contact the reps and really uh, start thinking about it and implement, implement it into your practice. You can reach out to us and I'd be happy to share our uh, consent and, and information pam pamphlets. We would love to have our colleagues expand their scope. Um, one thing we um, have done is do a lot of education during this time to our staff, but also actually more so, unfortunately not enough to our staff, but more so to our uh, referring doctors and focusing on improving our, uh, our website, really updating our website on the information that's on our website on all of these offerings that we have in our practice. Because what we do know is that patients are sitting at home and uh, searching and they're also sitting at home and what, thinking to themselves how they can improve their lives. Um, that LASIK surgery that they had on the back burner and they always put it off this time, these last six weeks may have made them think, you know what, maybe I should spend more time taking care of myself and maybe I should invest in that LASIK surgery uh, or, um, you know, go to the eye doctor. So I would suggest take this next few weeks and, and uh, update your, you know, first think about expanding the scope of your practice and two, uh, improve uh, your website and really update it to reflect the improvements you've implemented into your practice. Yeah, I, I think that's wonderful advice, Netta. I just want to remind all of our attendees that, you know, we have the opportunity to do live question and answer. So if you have something that you'd like to ask us, please feel free to put it in the chat. Um, if you have done something really interesting with your practice, if you've undertaken a, a, a big website update or you've done something interesting or something interesting personally, and you'd like us to mention that, uh, we would be happy to do so. Um, the question I have for Dan is is kind of two pronged. One is, you know, I've always I've always kind of wondered. I always want to ask you this question. So now I have the chance. I'm going to ask it. Um, you know, when you had the conversation and you did, you guys decided to go full in on refractive surgery and you didn't take um, Medicare. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. In 2005, yeah. we dropped out of Medicare and insurance. Okay, and so that seems very scary to me. Um, I know how reimbursement has been going and I see where it's heading and you know, that's obviously something I'm very concerned about, but when you would have, when you all made that very um, monumental decision, did you have a lot of pushback from patients who now are going to have to pay cash for, you know, not only their, their, their lens, but also their ASC procedure, et cetera. And, and what about referring optometrists? Um, did you see a lot of, um, referrals now starting to go elsewhere. And could you comment on that? Because it's just something I've always wondered about. It, making that decision certainly has ripple effects. Yeah, well, it's an interesting time. In, and um, uh, we were building a practice, we were building a brand. And so what we really wanted to be known for is something that not everybody else was doing. So we individualized our exams and we actually changed rather than selling surgery, we sold the best eye exam that anybody could ever imagine. So we developed the lifetime vision plan. And so we went out and brought people in and talked to them about uh, what their uh, vision was now, what their options were now and what the future was now. And we kind of looked at it at the point where we were doing a lot of co-managing before that and we were insurance and Medicare but we really wanted to individualize it. And that was a risk, but it was very successful at that point in time. Uh, so we went 
kind of NOCO management, uh, to saw our own patients, we saw our own patients back. And that was a very good model over the last 15 years that I wouldn't suggest today. The reason is there's just way too many cataracts to do. You know, one of our goals is to make sure that we become a comprehensive refractive surgeon that includes cataracts. And so I think it's, it was a good model then and it fit for the times for us. And, uh, but if we look at uh, practices that have been real successful refractive surgery practices now, they're doing uh, the best cataract surgery there is, which is being done by a refractive cataract surgeon. So, um, and I've told people that for years is, uh, is that our model worked great for us and it was great for Jason and Tim and myself. But I think in going forward, it's something that, that um, uh, adding cataracts. Now that we're, Jury Vision is doing in-office cataract or IOL surgery, we're actually doing in-office cataract surgery and insurance companies are coming to us because we can save them money. So it's really one of those things where it's part of the, even the practice change that we're doing from that standpoint too. One thing I'd like to add here, because I think it's um, uh, relevant because when we change the practice style, we slowed down. We slowed down and we didn't try to see 80 patients a day. We tried to see uh, uh, individual consultations and we saw patients kind of like practices are gonna do when they come back out of the COVID-19 valley. You're gonna have to slow down and you're gonna have to social uh, distance. And so we, got away, uh, we did away with our waiting room. So, you know, you think about, that was the first thing we did is what does everybody hate about going to the doctor? It's sitting in the waiting room. So our technicians, whether they're going to surgery or whether they're a post-op patient or in our new patient area are met by the technician right at the front desk. The other thing that they do is we only have one technician in the new patient area that takes the patient all the way through. So they meet the patient at the front desk, they take them back, take their history, they do all of their tests, and then they scribe. And what's interesting is I think that's something that you all might wanna think about as a practice change that works very well. The technicians love it because they um, not only get to learn other skills about how to do photography, how to do OCT, how to do topography, but when they're scribing then they get to see what uh, us explain what they just saw and their skills are up, their job satisfaction is up. We don't ever lose uh, technicians because they really love what they're doing because they have a patient they're with. But if I look at the post COVID-19 where you're gonna have to slow down and social distance, that's one thing I advise people that maybe you, uh, rather than putting X's on the chair in your waiting room, see if you could actually eliminate it by just having the patients come in and have a technician meet them right there, take them back. So you had one person for that one patient and safety is extremely high that way because they're not exposed to a whole lot of people. So I can tell you because we've been doing this a long, long time and it's been very successful. And the other practices, um, you know, whether it's George Waring or Jason Britton or, or Joel Hunter, they all do it the same way that they learned when they did a fellowship with us. And it's been successful elsewhere. It's not just our practice. Netta, do you think there's going to be sort of the haves and have-nots after this? I mean, this is this has put a lot of stress on the system, um, and we already knew that ophthalmology was taking a pretty big hit with cataract surgery reimbursement this year. Um, it, I feel like refractive surgeons really have almost an unfair advantage um, going coming out of the COVID nineteen crisis. How can we support our colleagues who are maybe dabbling in refractive cataract surgery? You've sort of mentioned this before, but 
do you feel like our societies could possibly do more to sort of help bring along folks who weren't trained in refractive surgery? Um, I know there's the Refractive Surgery Council and I'm part of the Refractive Surgery Alliance, which has been uh, very, very helpful. But what things do you think um, other surgeons can do when they're, when they're thinking about um, maybe trying this um, or getting up to speed post COVID? Are you, are you more uh, speaking about refractive cataract surgery or? Uh, Probably refractive cataract surgery because I think it's a harder leap. Um, it's yeah. a little bit steeper curve uh, to learn LASIK and PRK, although it's, it's doable. I mean, I did it after residencies as well, so it can be done. But um, what do you think we can be doing to encourage our colleagues um, to, you know, not only talking about the ways we do refractive surgery, but talking about the impact that we can have on patients because honestly like you said with your ICL patients some of my most grateful patients are those multifocal patients who we've properly selected educated and and delivered on they're so happy that they can now have a range of vision something that they had lost we gave it back to them I mean are there other things you think we can do I, I think being generous with our knowledge base, I think it's really uh, important uh, to share what we've learned through the years of experience, but also be totally transparent about the downfalls of it too. I don't think we um, uh, do it justice if we say every patient is happy. I think it's important for us to be really transparent with those challenging patients and, and how we handle challenges. Um, to be a, a confident uh, refractive cataract, you know, cataract surgeon, uh, you need to know how to handle the challenges uh, and only then can you move forward ahead. Because the, the actual surgery, as you know, is not very different than doing non-refractive cataract surgery. It's the, it's the fear of what if, what if the patient doesn't have the outcome that we hope to give them? And what do I do if the patient has glaring halos? So I find that so much focus has been placed on teaching surgeons how to forge ahead and less on how to get yourself out of, uh, uh, out of trouble. Uh, I think if we shift gears and say, okay, he, and, and admit it, you know, there are those patients and, and that are unhappy and how, how have we handled it? And when we can't handle it or we can't make them happy, how do you do lens exchanges safely and, and, and not run away from, uh, from those unhappy patients? So that's, that's, I think, what really helped me when I sat down and talked to colleagues and said, you know, don't tell me about your happy patients. Tell me how you dealt with the unhappy ones. What was you know, the unhappiest patient you had and how did you, do, you know, how did you manage their problems and how did you make them happy? It's when I had those tools in my pocket that I felt comfortable forging ahead. And so let's, let's, let's put on webinars. Why don't you do a Zoom meeting on, on exactly how to handle those troubled patients rather than the easy ones? I think that would be really helpful. Education would be really key and just sharing knowledge, um, creating a forum of colleagues where we you know, share what we've done to, to implement that in our practice. One thing I've learned through this COVID uh, time, six weeks um, of collaborating with colleagues and friends and, um, you know, sitting down and talking and, and going through this stressful time together. There's so much that collectively we can handle that alone uh, can, can, we can find it to be much more stressful. Yeah. Uh, Blake so, uh, or, or Gary. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump in there, but just tell you uh, something that happened. I think as we all, anybody who's been through refractive sub day at the academy knows that we kind of have the breakfast for the experts area that's kind of around coffee or, or those things. Well, Vance Thompson and I did one and the sign up above is how to talk to your unhappy refractive surgery patients. 
and there was about 80 people around ours and nobody else went to the scientific ones. So everybody's joking that Vance and I were the experts in unhappy patients. Uh, but it showed you there was huge interest in this and I think we miss it. And I think it's a great idea to do some real education because I think it keeps people from doing um, refractive cataract surgery. I think it keeps people from even doing uh, LASIK surgery at, at the level that they should. So I think it is an educational thing that we really ought to emphasize more because there's a trick to it. Um, there's an empathy that you have to have. There's a body language that you have to have. You have to not get technical and explain things about the laser and how corny is healed. You need to show true empathy and those skills can be learned and, and passed on. One thing I've, I've said for a long time is ophthalmology is a microcosm of every specialty. And the most underappreciated microcosm is the psychiatry involved um, in ophthalmology. Um, I've actually tried for years to get a psychiatrist to come on off the grid um, to actually talk to us about what, how does a patient go through a grieving process when they had an expectation that wasn't met? How do we maintain trust with a patient that, you know, maybe is blaming a surgeon for something that is really no one's fault um, and still maintain the, you know, the level of trust to allow us to, you know, reoperate and get them to a place where they're um, able to be happy. So I think that psycho-ophthalmology is potentially um, a field that is underappreciated. And Dan, I really appreciate you bringing that up. What do you, what do you think, Blake? Yeah, I mean, I think the same. I think that um, you know a lot of a lot of the, the reason that people hold back is because they kind of don't know what to do with that type of patient, or just don't want to deal with it. And to them, it's just not worth it to them. They'd rather just punch a clock and build Medicare and go play golf. But you know, with reimbursements getting cut and cut and cut, and now you know with this crisis, you really got to be thinking about ways for those patients that desire freedom from spectacles and contacts. I think that you know, you, you got to be able to offer that. And I guess if you ask me how I would do it, if, if, if I was in that position, I think one of the strongest things you can do is phone a friend, right? So, so even if I know that travel is kind of difficult right now, but as soon as it's lifted, go visit practices. I always find so much value out of visiting uh, you know people's practices and ophthalmologists are so you know warm and engaging that they'll do that and then you know when you do go back home to your practice I bet you could find you know either a partner or, or a colleague even if they're you know you know uh, 20 miles away or something like that whatever makes you feel comfortable who would be willing to help you in the case that maybe you weren't willing to do you're not comfortable doing a lens exchange uh, if the patient was unhappy or maybe you don't own an eczema laser and you need some to do a touch-up, you know, finding someone to do that for you shouldn't be that difficult. I'd be happy to, you know, mentor someone, a younger surgeon in my market, if they ever came to do that. So I think that's a, a very important thing. Um, and also, um, you know, also, I also love what you guys have been talking about with, you know, involving optometry, especially with new things like lens-based refractive surgery. We, we kind of talked about something the other day, Gary, that I want to bring up to, to uh, these two guests in particular, because they work a lot with optometrists and things like that. Um, what do y'all think about the idea of like renting a lane in an optometry practice? Uh, and it would be like a virtual consult lane. So, you know, Dury Vision or, or uh, Maloney Shami Vision could 
could, you know, not, not go out and build a brick and mortar and not, you know, rent, you know, the whole office or, or even visit it in person, but you rent a lane and you have a, a decked out, you know, Zaldivar style, you know, telemedicine room um, and do it that way. Because, you know, you mentioned earlier, Netta, coming, you know, with, with LA being so sprawling, you know, people don't want to come back and forth. But what if, the, what if you guys had your own lane? Do you think that that's something that, that our OD colleagues would go for? What do you think, Netta? I think it's a really interesting and creative idea. And we've actually are exploring the idea of having satellite offices that we could do um, telemedicine through. Um, it, it would be challenging to have lanes in, in multiple optometry practices, but I can't see why we can't do telemedicine uh, consults while, while the patient is in the optometrist office and have the optometrist be in on that conversation. Um, I have a friend of mine who's a plastic surgeon here in Beverly Hills, um, and uh, he was telling me how he does consults with overseas patients when the patient is in their dermatologist's office. And the dermatologist and the patient call into the consult, and the plastic surgeon and the dermatologist and the patient are very much on a screen like we are, and they're having a dialogue together. Um, I can see that happening uh, just fine. Now, if there was maybe um, a, an extension or satellite of your practice where you had an optometrist that, that worked with you, then I can see there being a lane. Uh, the truth of the matter is there's so many creative ways that we could take advantage of technology that we haven't yet done. And something that, Gary, we talked about was how um, we can take it, come out of this time and really improve ourselves and maybe improve ophthalmology altogether. And your idea, Blake, could be one way that we could, maybe in 10 years, ophthalmology will be a whole different type of practice. Um, I think the idea of not having a waiting room, this is something we've toyed with in our practice and um, kind of a concierge type setup. We, there's a couple of hotels here in Los Angeles where there is no registration or front desk. When you pull up your car, there's someone waiting for you with an iPad at the door to check you in as they walk you to the room. Um, and, and it would be incredible if medical practices are like that. Uh, when you think about the steps, one of the things we thought about going back to opening up next week um, is really thinking about all the different steps in the processing of the patient through our practice, where the bottlenecks are. The biggest bottleneck is really at the front desk and the patient checking in and having to sit down and fill up paperwork and then putting that chart up and waiting for the technician to take the patient back. Well, why can't that paperwork be done ahead of time where it's an expectation and a requirement for the patient to have not just their paperwork in, but also have a very thorough history that's, that's put into the system and the patient comes in and immediately they're taken back. I mean, Dan, I'd love to hear how you've come, you know, gone around that whole paperwork process in the beginning of a patient checking in. You know, it, it's interesting when we first decided uh, and pra practices, obviously everybody has a waiting room and it took us a lot of years to get rid of it altogether. Our new facility has couches, but not a waiting room just for somebody that doesn't want to come back. But we did, we started out when we still had a waiting room that says, what do we need to do to get rid of the waiting room? And the first thing we had to do was this paperwork situation. So we were one of the first people to start doing online registration. And even if they haven't done it, we take them back out of the waiting room and do it with them uh, in uh, the technician does that with them. So, and now uh, I'd say 
the majority of our patients do it all ahead of time. So I think that you could still don't have to give them a, we said no clip no clipboard, no wait. So that was our thing. They said, we're not gonna give them a clipboard and we're not gonna have them wait in their waiting room. So that was part of it. Um, but getting the whole staff involved with coming up with ideas on how to do it was great. Because once we said, we've gotta get rid of the waiting room, uh, uh, you know, theoretically, and we're not going to have a clipboard. We're not going to wait. How can we do this? And got the staff involved in moving that direction. I think you've got the opportunity in this um, coming out of the valley to kind of talk to your staff on how can we do that and how can we be safer for the patients that are nervous about coming back. So I think you have a lot of opportunity there. When you think about it, the patient comes in, sits in the waiting room, fills out the paperwork. So if you find a way to get around that, and then you take the patient into the room and a technician and takes down the history. Well, we can can take down the history through either a video conference or simply a phone call. If we have a technician assigned to call everyone who is scheduled to come the following day and takes down the history and writes it down, then the patient's history is done, their paperwork is done, and maybe even counseling for a one and a half hour new consult into a 20 minute pass through consult where the patient enjoys the efficiency of that process you minimize uh, exposure to potential uh, COVID or other viruses that are gonna come around in the years to come. And, uh, and, and then you've created a really streamlined practice that will benefit everyone involved. So forming some type of tele-registration team is what needs to happen. And that's what we've done at Williams and I. We've shifted to a, a, a full-on tele-registration Team. They're kind of doing telemed, but they're getting, you know, the, the, the history and the meds and the insurance and all that stuff so that when they come in, they basically get to go straight to see their doctor or to whatever diagnostic test. Uh, so I think that's very important. Um, and I had another comment that, that, that I thought about because Dan mentioned it, but before I do, you know, we can't do education and things like this without the help of our support, um, you know, from industry. So I do want to just uh, thank Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision, Ari, Novartis, Santin, Kayla Pharmaceuticals, Diamatrix, Avellino, and Dom Pei. We really appreciate you guys for allowing us to come on and, and learn. And, you know, one thing that, that Dan said, Gary, I want to get your take on this, is he talked about involving the staff. One thing that, that I've just kind of come up with in the past day or two um, is why the heck aren't my lens counselors and uh, a phone team, why aren't they on Zooms talking with the lens counselors at Dury Vision and Maloney Shammy Vision? Like why, why, if, I mean, our, our, I find that our staff, they, they like to collaborate and share ideas almost as much as we do. I'm doing this, uh, this, uh, this MIGS event tomorrow and, uh, and my, my scribe said, hey, uh, I put it on Facebook. She goes, hey, can I log in and, and do that? And just kind of caught me off guard. And I was like, yeah, yeah, actually you can. And, and they're hungry for knowledge. So this episode is all about thriving in the new normal, right? And we've talked about a lot of ways. One way is to thrive is we need to challenge our team to connect more and our team to share ideas more because they're not, you know, in the hallways at Ascris or on the slopes at ACOS, you know, talking about the new lens and constantly networking like we are. What do you think about that, Gary? Yeah, Blake, I appreciate you asking that. You know, I've thought for a long time that we should really have a society of excellence in refractive counseling of some sort where we have various leaders in the, in the best practices um, sort of teaching um, newer or even experienced uh, refractive counselors 
the techniques that it takes to educate and convert patients to um, you know refractive or premium options. You know, it's sometimes we as doctors just can't get out of our own way, um, and we become the 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 I guess the the rusty cog in the wheel where we go to a meeting and we learn something um, about refractive counseling and we sort of take it back but we don't really fully understand it because we're not that deeply invested in the trenches and we, then we try to teach that to our refractive counselors but there might be something missing that, that we don't fully communicate so I like to eliminate myself from things that I, I'm not fully an expert in and I would much rather connect Dan or Netta or your refractive counselor with my refractive counselors to have this sort of educational, um, you know, cross pollination, which I think is, is super important, but there just hasn't been, I don't know if it's just the societies aren't there to do it or we haven't put it on or whatever the, the barrier is, but this is the way that I think we can actually, um, you know, the rising tide floats all boats. We can rise the t raise the tide by allowing the best in the business to educate the other ones who want to learn and want to be a part of this. So, I yeah, mean, it's interesting that those of you that are on the RSA forum noticed that yesterday somebody reached out exactly that and said, I have a, I have a, a counselor and how do I get more education for my counselor? And uh, uh, we, we already looked at that this morning and we wanted to do exactly what you said, Gary is trying to get, uh, counselors from different practices together to be coming up with best practice and why have we not been connecting them? Uh, this is exactly what we need to do. So I think we can formalize that a little bit more. Um, as you know, this concept of the College of Refractive Surgery that's kind of developing uh, isn't going to be a College of Refractive Surgery for just surgeons. It's going to be for office managers and it's going to be for technicians and it'll be for counselors. And so education um, of our staff is something uh, you're absolutely right, Gary. We've had a tendency to be the filters, and um, whereas we need to get them all working together, especially in the refractive surgery field. Um, these, some of these counselors are extremely good at talking to patients a lot better than we are. But just, Gary, just think yeah. about what you described. You said you've gone to Ascris, you've gone to these meetings, and then you come back and bring, you try to bring that knowledge back. It's that whole, went to the meeting and come back. That's the old way that we used to learn. Um, it's incredible how much we've learned. I've learned more in this last six weeks from webinars and such than I may have learned at meetings over many years because, um, you know, sure, meetings are fantastic. I find the value being in, in mostly in the networking. Uh, but this is, I'm sitting right across from you. We're talking, we're focused, I'm not distracted, uh, even though my dog is whining right outside my, my door right now. Um, but, uh, you know, it's incredible. So now I think there are these opportunities and I hope that when we go back to our busy lives again, we don't forget um, ways that we turn this crisis into opportunity and we don't forget ways that we can expand that opportunity to continue on and learn and, and create webinars for our staff. And it's going to be so easy for right after this call, we can just say, let's get our counselors together next week and put them you know, on a Zoom call and we can probably learn as much sitting there listening on to their conversations as they would just talking to each other. Um, so I would say, yes, please lead those forums because it would be huge value for the whole community of ophthalmologists and surgeons.
Blake, I think we've got our maybe an upcoming episode of Off the Grid uh, Zoom live with the best refractive counselors. So if, if anyone listening thinks they have the best refractive counselor and they would like to offer them up with some, uh, you know, with the opportunity to teach others, you know, we would we will uh, take those. Uh, we will take that email and, and uh, try to put that together. Um, we do have a couple. Go ahead, Blake. You read my mind. That's why we work so well together. I was thinking that I was thinking the exact same thing, um, and uh, and I think that that would be super. That's a total. That's a great off to get episode. Uh, Guy Kazarian has a question here um, that I think is great. Um, he, he he says there's been articles in the popular press about masks making it difficult to wear glasses due to fogging and about the dangers of COVID conjunctivitis for contact lens wearers. Are you guys messaging refractive surgery differently in light of these issues? Do you think there's an opportunity to shift the perception from refractive surgery being elective to being safer? And I want to know what you guys think about that because, you know, we got to be, we, we, we want to be careful with our messaging there. It's a thin line, isn't it? I mean, we don't want to say many of us may have opticals and contact lenses in our practice. Many of us, like we do, many of us may have optometrists that work inside of our practice like we do. So we don't want to come out and say, you know, glasses and contacts are bad, but it's a real thing. He's exactly right. You know, uh, my team hates having, you know, their, their eyewear is fogging up constantly. Um, how can we message that and still be, you know, sensitive and not uh, putting down contacts and glasses too bad at the same time? Yeah, Blake, I don't know who you're addressing to, but I think there's a caution, but the reality is uh, that, um, refractive surgery is going to continue to grow and patients are going to still wear glasses or still wear contact lenses. But one thing that's, that's been surprising to us when we were, uh, all of our practice was thrown to just doing emergencies is how many contact lens problems we saw. Uh, it was amazing. And, and it, it just focused all the practice. We were only seeing emergencies and how many were contact lens related. And, you know, we just uh, had a picture of uh, bilateral student bonus ulcers. There was a bilateral anthocanthomy that showed up on the Karanet, uh, just in a young person from contact lenses. So I do think that we do a service to our patients uh, on, especially in the contact lens area. Um, they don't follow the hygiene rules the way they should. Um, if they're candidates for refractive surgery, I think we all believe that they should at least be addressed to them. So I think there is a balance. It is amazing how people don't like wearing masks, wearing glasses, and their glasses fogging up. And I don't think we ever thought about that. There's probably gonna be a billboard on that from a refractive surgeon pretty soon with somebody with their glasses fogging up with their mask on. If I can also comment on that, I think it would be very difficult um, to do very direct marketing around that subject matter, around that topic for the same reasons mentioned, and also just I think it would be a little insensitive uh, to do that. It may, it may be uh, uh, seen as being a little too pushy and such. I think if we can focus our marketing on talking about the safety of refractive surgery and the hurdles that patients feel uh, in, in when they hesitate to proceed with refractive surgery, addressing those, it'll just naturally um, help those patients who are frustrated with the need for glasses or contacts to then make that conversion easier. Uh, that would be, a, I think, much more responsible approach in, in doing this. We did have a surgeon who, um, uh, in our region, who did some advertising around refractive surgery during COVID time and even commented on how uh, it would be easy to do surgery now because there's no traffic. So come on in. 
and he got a lot of backlash for it. And I think, um, again, it, it would be challenging if we have a lot of um, optometrists that we work with to, to say it's safer, because for some patients, it may not be safer. And so just, I think, talking about how much safer it's become, uh, just refractive surgery compared to how it used to be or the perception people have, that in itself will naturally convert patients. Yeah. Um, there's, there's also concern about this uh, coming out of COVID. Are people going to not be able to afford premiums or premium, uh, surgery such as refractive surgery? I think we're definitely going to see um, a, a dip. But on the other hand, uh, as I mentioned, I think there's also that sense and hope that when people are at home and they uh, um, are realizing that they had put things off in taking care of themselves, maybe they'll come back and they'll, um, instead of spending their money on travel this summer that they can't do, will consider what they can do to actually improve their lifestyle and their, their health and refractive surgery being one of them. I, I actually think, if I can comment here, I actually think that we're going to see a rally in refractive surgery because it doesn't take a billboard for people to realize that during this time, they either ran out of contacts and were frustrated by wearing their old glasses, um, like Pam Beasley on The Office when she, uh, you know, forgot her contacts uh, and she came into the office and it's a great episode. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think people are going to naturally connect the dots that, wearing glasses or con contacts um, has become frustrating for them. And for those patients who are intolerant of glasses and contacts and are motivated to have uh, refractive surgery, you know, obviously we're a great solution for that and we can provide those solutions. And I almost think that I've said this before and, you know, I keep saying the Chick-fil-A effect, but you know, everyone, I want Chick-fil-A on Sunday when I can't have it. And now I think refractive surgery is kind of like that. People have always thought, well, if I want LASIK, I'll get it sometime down the road. Um, I always have access to it. It's at you know, a moment's notice. I'll go in and get it. Now is the only time when they have not been able to get LASIK. And maybe they've always wanted it. And they are now thinking, as soon as I can, I'm going to get this fixed. I'm not going to put it off any longer. I don't want to go through this you know, in the future. The future is a little uncertain. I want to get my eyes fixed so I don't have this challenge in the future. That's what I think. Dan, what, do you think that I'm off base or do you think that's a possibility? Well, if we go to the data that we're getting and our colleagues that are ahead of us on, on the curve, uh, if we want to call it that, in Singapore, um, Hong Kong, South Korea, China, a refractive surgeries come back a little faster than cataract surgery in many of those practices for the exact reasons you just, uh, um, people thought about it. They thought about safety issues. They thought about their contact lenses. They thought about inconvenience, thought about taking care of themselves more because they've had more time with them and the family. So we have data to prove that the refractive surgery has, has come back well. Matter of fact, there's a major practice in South Korea that was shut down for all, a little over a month in the first quarter of this year, no surgery at all, and still made their first quarter. And it was mainly on refractive surgery coming in. And um, they were, um, uh, it was a real surprise to them too. So we'll have to wait and see where the US market is different. But we have, at least the Asian market is a little ahead of us and, and showing a, a return of refractive surgery at a very strong level. Yeah, I feel like, you know, in terms of how to how to tell that story, I think every good story needs a hero and a hero always helps a controversial story. And, and, and what I'm referring to is I think the way to kind of message uh, the, the glasses and contacts thing with with Exmer is exactly the way Greg Parkhurst did it. I think it was last week. He had a nurse 
who he was doing uh, surgery on, uh, saw it on Facebook that they that he did a thing there, and she was she was kind of going through where she couldn't wear glasses because they were getting fogged up. She's a frontline healthcare worker, and she can't see, and she had contact lens intolerance. So that's just the truth, and I think that telling the truth uh, through the lens of a hero, like a frontline nurse who's in the COVID wards, nobody can you know really shake a stick at that. I think so. Um, I think that that's a that's a good thing to do. And Dan, I want to throw you in that at this this question. If if one of you looked at it. Uh, we have an anonymous uh, question here asking about concerns about the COVID virus being aerosolized with the eczema plume. So by doing LASIK, are you going to uh, aerosolize uh, COVID into the air? Um, do you, either of you have, you, have you all looked into that? Well, I, I'm old enough that we studied the plume tremendously over the years and, and we were not just on this virus, but on other viruses. But I think that the, um, nobody has ever seen a case of it. Nobody thinks that there's any increased risk. But you have to remember, we're going to do the things in the operating room to try to protect the patient, protect our staff for any viruses. And I think we're going to do it even better than we ever did in the past. But there is no scientific evidence of anybody getting a viral infection, either this one or other COVID viruses or anything else. We worried about this in the AIDS epidemic when we were doing a lot of AIDS patients. And you know we just um, uh, took care of cautions, and there wasn't any reports. There is some uh, reports that are coming out. There is some virus in the people that are severely infected coming through their tears now. So I think we really have to be careful with our hand washing and protecting our, ourselves uh, as we get back to work. Netta, I want to I want to just ask you one last thing about any final comments. You know, you've you've taught me to live life like it's rigged in your favor. Uh, that's something that you mentioned on one of the early podcasts we did together. How are you living life right now, like it's rigged in your favor? And any final silver linings that you can give us? Well, uh, you're so sweet to to end with that comment. Uh, as you know, that that's my favorite uh, quote from a Persian poet from. Uh, 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 gosh, ancient, ancient poet, uh, Persian poet. You know, I, if you remember during that podcast, one of the things I said was how I'm worried for my children that they don't, they haven't really experienced challenges in their life that has given them a, a sense of purpose or has grounded them or, or real story to tell, right? Because for me, my story was going through war and the challenges that, and the unknowns of that. Um, I don't want to say that I'm happy that they're going through this, but I can tell you this, that we, it's led to a lot of conversations around, around our dinner table that we finally have on a nightly basis, husband there too. And um, this is going to be, if we look at it in, in, a, in a way that we think about it as a gift, as a gift to really feel uh, grounded and, and a real sense of, um, uh, and seek lessons in it and think about um, how we can turn this crisis into opportunity and how in what ways we've seen silver linings in it we can leave this and we are going to survive this we're going to get past this we're going to leave it with um, a real sense of uh, appreciation for what we went through and and hopefully turn the experience into lessons and things that we will apply to every aspect of our life my family we've decided to call our sundays going go coming out of this COVID sundays moving forward uh, because we want to remember um, the things that we loved about this experience, and that is being together, talking, connecting with friends and family, become, you know, taking time to think and be creative on how to improve ourselves. 
all of those things we had been missing out on because we had gone into this frenzy of life that had become so, so mechanical. And I think the biggest silver lining in all of this has been the connections we've made with our family, our friends, with ourselves internally, um, and really uh, allowing ourselves to be creative in ways that we can improve uh, every aspect of our life. So that's so well said. And uh, Blake, any, or Dan, any other final comments as we wrap up here? I love what you said about that, Netta. I think this is a Sabbath rest in some ways that we've been missing for a long time. So Dan or Blake, any final comments? Uh, from my standpoint, I think uh, I loved what Netta just said, and that's been my philosophy all along. I, I think that th this, we can be better because of the time we spent with our family, our friends, and had time. Uh, I've never taken so many walks, but my head's so busy in my walks about thinking about what to do next and how to make it better. Uh, but it, it's given me time to really think and, and work on uh, great new projects. But I uh, appreciate all, all the input that all of our colleagues have had, and I think that the the future does look really good. Yeah, my problem is I work with my family. So now I have them at work and at home. It's double trouble. Uh, so no, 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 I love what they said. I, I agree with everything. Um, uh, I'm going to go down and uh, make my first daiquiri of the night because we got our Hawaiian shirts on. And right. uh, I'm going to enjoy my family, uh, just like uh, Netta just said. So thank you all so much. All right, y'all. Thank you for, for joining us uh, for another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We will Thank see you, you next week. And hopefully we'll be having the presidents of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, uh, ACR, ASCRS, and the American Optometric Academy on as well for a very fruitful conversation about how we work together moving forward. So don't miss that. I believe that's next Tuesday. Is that right, Blake? Okay, we'll see you all next Tuesday. Thanks. Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.